What's the greatest threat right now that Israel faces? Foreign threat. Iran. You want the three threats? Give me the three threats. Iran, Iran, Iran. Now let's take some time and walk through this. Shalom, and welcome to another episode of Israel Policy Pod, Israel Policy Forum's podcast. I'm Eli Koaz, Communications Director. And I'm Evan Gottesman, Communications Associate. So Israel is a country that often finds itself in military entanglements. In addition to the deep-rooted conflict with the Palestinians, Israel faces a lot of uncertainty along its borders. Israel has two rather cold peace treaties with Egypt and Jordan, and borders two other hostile states, Lebanon and Syria, to the north, the latter of which is in the throes of a civil war. So to dissect these serious challenges, we are joined by Chuck Freilich, a returning guest to the podcast. Freilich is a former Israeli Deputy National Security Advisor and a current senior fellow in the International Security Program at the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. He is also a member of the Commanders for Israel Security Movement. His new book, just released, is Israeli National Security, A New Strategy for an Era of Change, published by Oxford University Press. Chuck, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the program. Thanks for inviting me. So starting off, in your book, you say that Israel lacks a formal national security strategy and that it should adopt one. What do we mean when we're discussing a national security strategy? What specifically does that term refer to? Well, really what it means is trying to set out in a systematic fashion your national objectives, the primary objectives that you want to achieve, and trying to think through the different ways of achieving them uh, in the best manner. It's not, as some people think, uh, the equivalent of an architectural blueprint. Okay? It's not a nitty-gritty plan that says exactly how you have to go about doing things. It's an intellectual exercise or thought process which is designed to help you think through things in a systematic fashion. And what Israel has done to date is, in some cases successfully, in some cases unsuccessfully, is basically just deal things ad hoc as they develop without a long-term thinking process of where we'd like to be as a nation. So Israel lacks a a formal national security strategy. Is that correct? Yes. Has it ever had one or something resembling one in the past? Ben-Gurion, in the early 50s, formulated what's called or considered Israel's classic national security doctrine. It's not a full national security strategy. Uh, But he did set out the elements, many of which uh, guide Israel's thinking to this day. Uh, For example, the fact that Israel could not afford uh, to wage war on its territory, that always has to be on the other side. For example, the need to have superpower alliances at all times and never go to war, if at all possible, without the approval of of the foreign patron. Uh, The need for... Uh, building up Israeli society as the basis for its national security strength. He set out a number of fundamental principles, some of which still hold very much today, some of which are no longer uh, quite relevant. Even that one was never formally adopted by the government, but that really was a guiding light for decades. There have been a number of attempts to update the Ben-Gurion doctrine, the most um, prominent of which 
was an attempt in 2006, which was led by Dan Merido, which was a truly comprehensive and uh, impressive effort. It was classified. What I've tried to do in this book is two things. One is it's the most comprehensive work today about Israeli national security strategy, but more importantly, it's the first public proposal for a national security strategy. And the idea behind it is to now have a written basis, and of course this is unclassified, so that people can, can those people who want to conduct fact-based discourse have the basis for doing it. And there are nearly 50 pages of recommendations. I don't expect everyone to agree with me on everything. That's fine. I don't have all the wisdom. But if you, someone wants to conduct a serious discussion and you want to disagree, okay, good. Each recommendation is explained in great detail and it draws on the background chapters. Now say where the, the facts, where the argumentation is wrong, and we can have a discussion. So I think to better understand your recommendations, um, we should go back and talk about you know why Israel hasn't had a national security strategy. Mm-hmm. Why, to this point, um, you know, this is the first um, public proposal for a national security strategy for Israel, um, what elements uh, led to the absence of one for the previous seven decades? That's a really good question, and it gets to the heart of uh, the way Israel does things. Israel was born, as everyone who's familiar with history knows, in rather extreme circumstances. Uh, this was really a case of putting a country together with uh, chewing gum and uh, masking tape. We had no resources. Israel was born out of war, and just three years after the Holocaust, we had virtually nothing. And so the early years were all about just survival. Okay, We won the War of Independence, but it was still a matter of survival afterwards. The Arab states were committed to Israel's destruction. There was mass immigration. There were no resources. So everything was done on an ad hoc basis, and improvisation became not just a, a necessary evil, but over the years it became the hallmark of how Israel does things, not just in the national security area, but in general. Uh, it was never about long-term thinking. It was about how do we survive till tomorrow. And that became institutionalized. That became the Israeli way of doing things. And partly, by the way, it's justified to this day because we still live in ext- uh, an extremely difficult uh, part of the world, but only partly. Because today, Israel has become an established, secure state. And one of the things that I believe is we have to start taking a long-term approach to issues appropriate to an established state whose existence is no longer in danger. And the nature of the threats and the nature of the responses Israel has developed has changed as well. It's no longer just a matter of a quick retaliation raid um, to, in, to, as a reprisal for terrorism and to deter future terrorism. Everything we do today really is part of a longer-term struggle. There's no good and easy military solution to any of the major issues we face today. Israel's been defeating the Palestinians militarily for 100 years, and we may have to continue doing so. But there's no military solution to the Palestinian issue. The Iran issue is a long-term issue. We've been dealing with it since around 92. Again, there's no easy or maybe even any military solution to that one. We can gain a couple of years if we bomb it. It's a long-term thing. This new emerging northern front, the, the axis between Iran, Iraq, Iran, uh, Syria, Hezbollah, 
Also, there's no simple military solution. It's long-term. So we have to start thinking, and by the way, our enemies, first and foremost Iran and Hezbollah and Hamas, are thinking in terms of a decades-long struggle leading to Israel's destruction. So we also have to start thinking in a longer-term uh, frame and develop the appropriate strategic thinking for that kind of approach. And what benefits um, would Israel reap from establishing a longer-term uh, strategy as opposed to moving along on an ad hoc basis in dealing with those kinds of uh, challenges? Well, I think that one of the problems is that improvisation largely ran its course. And we can't afford to do it anymore. And I think if you look at recent decades, uh, Israel, which was and maybe still is a phenomenal success story, but certainly was in the early decades, in recent decades we've been making too many mistakes. And I say that not from my own personal perspective, but uh, I judge the outcome of a decision-making process in terms of whether the leader in power achieved his or her objectives in this specific case. And if you look again at what's happened in recent decades, there have been far too many cases in which that did not happen. The leaders didn't achieve their objectives. So we have to conduct some more serious, um, systematic thinking. And Could you offer some examples and how a national security strategy might have helped them achieve their objectives or come closer to achieving their objectives? Yeah, I mean, the, what comes to mind is obviously the two wars in, in Lebanon and the the various uh, operations in Gaza where... Uh, Absolutely. That was the first thing I was going to say. It's really been a long time since we unequivocally won a war. Right? As a matter of fact, it's 67, or if you want, 73, you can say we won in the end. But since then, there hasn't been a single major operation in a few decades now, which has ended with Israel achieving the objectives it set out for itself, with us ending a war feeling good about the outcome. So that's first and foremost on the military level. But on the political or diplomatic, I should say, level, there also haven't been very many cases of successful outcomes in recent decades. And even, um, let me give you another example. Uh, I discussed this in my previous book on national decision security decision-making in Israel. Take a look at the Lviv fighter. That was the biggest development project in Israel's history, at least at the time. And I chose that case study because I thought this was one which was, it's a matter of developing a weapon system, strategic weapon system. So it's all about money and, and operational capabilities. Can you explain and, the background for the project just for our listeners who might not be right. familiar with it? Yes, you're absolutely right. It, it was the first uh, time, the only time Israel tried to develop a combat, a fighter jet of its own. And there are only half a dozen countries in the world capable of doing that. It's, it costs an absolute fortune. It's at the very forefront of technology. And Israel basically had the technology, needed a little bit of American help for that, but basically had the technology. In the end, it simply didn't have the fine financial wherewithal, and this uh, project came crashing down, and Israel probably squandered billions. But at least at, at the time, in the late 80s, it was the biggest development project in Israel's history, probably is to this day. And it's looked at uh, by people on all sides of the argument, because some say it shouldn't have been terminated, and I think most believe that it should have, but... As a, as a colossal failure in the end. Uh, I chose it because, again, I thought it was all about a bang for your buck, how much money you put into the project, what kind of operational capabilities you get in exchange. It turned out to be one of the most politicized decision-making processes I can think of. 
And it's an example where it shouldn't have happened. All the data was there, but the cabinet refused to face it. And that's been true of other cases where it simply refuses to face it. And maybe the foremost issue is the West Bank question. The Israeli cabinet has never held a discussion, a cabinet meeting, on the fundamental issues raised by the West Bank issue. A discussion of demography, for example. It's never done that. It's never faced the question of, uh, is the West Bank truly essential to Israel's security? Now, there's no doubt that it's very important, but there are a lot of very smart people, uh, such as former chiefs of staff, who believe that there are other security arrangements that can be an acceptable alternative to a full-time presence in the West Bank. Well, how about thinking that through systematically? But the problem is that the Israeli cabinet is a uh, politically-based cabinet. It's not like the American system where it is uh, the cabinet secretaries are all uh, professional appointees. It's not like the British system where, yes, they are political appointees like in Israel, but the entire tradition behind it is different. In Israel, it's a political forum. It's not a policy forum. It's a political forum. And so you've never had a significant policy debate or policy discussion about such fundamental issues. In your time uh, working in the Israeli government, were there any instances where you felt the um, the status of the cabinet as a political forum was um, especially harmful to the uh, decision-making process and to some policy outcomes? Well, I think maybe on a uh, personal level, um, the unilateral withdrawal from Gaza was the case because that was one where the National Security Council, which I was in at the time, we led the the decision-making process on that. And the political process that accompanied it was truly phenomenal. It was something that only the quote-unquote bulldozer, uh, Arik Sharon, could have done. It was a a two-and-a-half-year period of a political roller coaster where he makes the decision that we're doing this, and then he faces a constant battle in the cabinet, uh, including from within his own party, attempts to unseat him. Now, of course, t- to an extent, this is legitimate. I mean, that's the democratic game. Um, but here, after the decisions were made, the opposition continued in repeated attempts to overturn the decision and to over, well, not overthrow him, but to, to throw him out of office and bring somebody else in. Um, looking back, do you think the Gaza withdrawal was a strategic mistake, uh, especially like I'm referring to the unilateral nature in which it was done? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think we probably could have done it better. Uh, I think Sharon was right in the beginning that uh, Arafat was simply not a partner, and so doing it unilaterally at that point was correct. When Arafat died in the middle of the process and Abu Mazen replaced him, I think that was an opportunity to not do it unilaterally and to reach, uh, at least possibly reach some sort of negotiated outcome. It's possible that Abu Mazen wasn't really a partner either, but had we not done it in such an imposed fashion, we could have at least gotten some um, some things from the international community in exchange, which Israel didn't even try to do. But the bottom line is I think it was the right thing to do. Uh, we are no longer in Gaza, and that is a huge advantage. Now, yes, there's a problem of the rockets. Most people forget that 
<laughs> thousands of rockets were fired from Gaza while we were still in control. Uh, yeah, I believe 2001 was the start of Hamas rocket right. fire, and people usually believe that it was only after Israel withdrew. Which is totally mm-hmm. false. It was thousands of rockets while Israel was still in full control, supposedly. So uh, has the problem gotten worse? The answer is probably yes. On the other hand, we have a clear border today. Israel understands exactly what it's fighting for when it comes to Gaza. And that should be the situation in the West Bank, too. Well, we know what the border is. We know what the battle is about. Uh, It strengthens the internal consensus. And it strengthens Israel's position internationally. Uh, So let's move maybe to talk about Iran. Um, Netanyahu frequently repeats whenever he's asked... uh, what the greatest strategic uh, threat to Israel is, he'll say Iran at least three times, if mm-hmm. not if not more. Um, so can you talk about the Iranian threat and if Israel has a current strategy um, in dealing with Iran? Um, and if not, what would you recommend? On a purely military level, I think the prime minister is right. Iran is, I think, the most sophisticated and therefore the most dangerous adversary Israel has ever faced. But let me start off by saying that I think we'll handle this one way or the other. We'll get through it, just like we've gotten through major dangers in the past. To me, the only existential threat we face today is in regard to the future of the West Bank, whether we can retain our Jewish and democratic character in the long run. But Iran is a severe threat. There's no doubt about it. And they really are sophisticated. Uh, Some people look at them as a bunch of uh, Michiganers, as a bunch of loonies. They're not. They are extremists, but they are very carefully calculating about how they go about their extremist policy. And they have, I think, a relatively well-developed concept or a strategy for how to bring about Israel's long-term demise, its uh, destruction through attrition. Because they, along with Hezbollah, which is an Iranian proxy, and Hamas, as early as the, the early 90s, identified Israel's home front as its weak point, its Achilles heel. And the idea is, in a multi-decade process, to try and erode Israel's staying power, to keep hitting the home front time after again, and ultimately bring about Israel's collapse. Now, they know they can't defeat us in one round or two rounds. It's not the old Arab dream about driving the Jews into the sea in one or two wars. This is over decades. Uh, the supreme leader, Khamenei, announced a nine-point plan for Israel's destruction a couple of years ago. We're talking a theocratic regime. They've got God on their side, and they've got a totally different approach to time. They're not a frenetic democracy like the United States or Israel. They're not worried about the next by-election. If it takes decades, that's fine. I think they just released, I don't know if this was from the uh, Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard, there was a, a 25-year countdown a countdown, countdown clock to Israel's destruction. So, okay. along I, with I what you're see, saying. Okay, I didn't see the clock, but uh, that fits in with the thinking. The message is the same. The message is the same. Uh, so, yeah. So, I think we have to address this very seriously. I'm... I believe that we can handle a nuclear Iran as well. I think Israel's strategic capabilities are such that we can manage the situation. But it would be a very dangerous one because in those circumstances, every confrontation 
becomes a a potentially existential one. And even if it isn't existential in the true sense, in the ultimate sense of the word, if it's just Tel Aviv, God forbid, that's basically existential. So I think we have to do everything we can to prevent Iran from going nuclear. I was and remain a strong supporter of the JCPOA as the best of the bad alternatives we face, as a basis for everything we do today and in the future, the idea of an, a follow-on agreement to make sure that Iran can never go nuclear, even when this deal expires, uh, addressing the, the missile issue and the so-called malign activities. But the JCPOA is the basis for this. And uh, I think we'd be in infinitely worse circumstances without it today. The um, Talking about the JCPOA, that's... Uh what's colloquially known as the Iran nuclear deal, what do you feel distinguished that from other uh, alternatives, what you refer to as the, the other bad alternatives, with this as the least bad alternative? You have to address uh, things. It's not just a question of what you want to do in life, but what is actually achievable. I have a, an article coming out. I call it the... the Dayenu approach to foreign policy. Okay. Not what I want, but what is sufficient. Now, if you look at the alternatives at the time, <clears throat> and, uh, three years ago when the deal was reached, and again today, what are the alternatives? Well, one thing is no deal at all. Iran does whatever it wants. It is at most a year away today, and when the deal was signed three years ago, somewhere between a few weeks and, a, and three months from enough fissile material for a first bomb. And it today already either has or is very near the missile capability for delivering it. So in effect, Iran was and is today a nuclear threshold state. So what do you do? Okay, one is to say, let them do their worst. Well, that's not a good an option. Another is an American military option. Uh, under Obama, that was not on the table. And I don't think it is uh, under President Trump either, at least for everything we can see at the moment. Sanctions and diplomacy and diplomatic pressure brought the Iranians to the table. It was enough to get them to make significant concessions, such as postponing the capability, but they were totally unwilling to give it up. You can try and topple the regime, which is a great option. The only problem is everybody's been trying to do it ever since the Islamic regime came into power in 1979. And no one has any idea how to do it today or when it would happen. Uh, and if it's going to happen, it's going to happen internally, any time between two minutes from now and decades from now. You can continue trying to sabotage the program. And if you read the press reports, the U.S. and Israel conducted a brilliant cyber attack. Unfortunately, it got out and was discovered, so it it was stopped before it caused uh, severe damage to the program. That's referring to the Stuxnet virus? Correct, yeah. correct. So doing that once was absolute intelligence brilliance. Now the Iranians are on high alert. Doing it again is going to be extraordinarily hard. Then they, they reverse-engineered it and did it to Saudi Arabia or one of the other Gulf states, right? Right, okay. But you can develop other, um, other cyber capabilities. That's pretty much the array of options. Uh, there's, of course, an Israeli military option, and uh, I don't know any expert who thinks that Israel can gain more than two to three years from doing that at great cost, because Iran isn't just going to say thank you. 
it will respond a little bit itself, and mostly it will respond with Hezbollah. And that's why they built up this mammoth rocket capability that Hezbollah has, estimated it between 100 and 150,000 rockets. Now, I don't think most people in Israel and probably most of our listeners understand the level of destruction that Israel's home front will face in the next round. It is going to be unprecedented. A hundred to 150,000 rockets. Let me overstate the case. That's almost a rocket for every home in Israel. It's not that bad. But this is something that we have never faced. Yes, we will destroy some of them on the ground. Yes, we will intercept some of them with Iron Dome and the other systems. But the home front is going to be hit in a way we've never been hit before. Now, just by the way, I would much rather be in Tel Aviv than in Beirut when this next one happens. But still, this is a new kind of war that we've never experienced. So we may have to go the military route. And by the way, if and when all other options have been fully exhausted, I believe Israel has to do it. We're going to have to swallow very hard and pay this price. And it will be, in terms of lives, it will be considerably smaller than the kinds of prices we've paid in the past. We're probably talking only hundreds of people. I say only with enormous quotation marks. Uh, but it will be enormous physical damage. No. There, would be, oh, sorry. There, there would be more than... There would be significantly less than Israel faced in the 60s and 70s, but more than in any of the recent rounds in Gaza and Lebanon. It would be much more yeah. than the recent rounds. It would be much, much, much less than in any of the so-called conventional wars right. uh, where the numbers were far greater and Israel's population at the time was... Uh, much smaller. smaller. Yeah. In 73, the, popu- the Jewish population was about a half of what it is today. At the time, we lost 2,700 guys. So if we lose a few hundred people today, in proportional terms, it's much smaller. But, yeah, we've also become a little bit um, even spoiled, if you will, and that's good. We don't want to pay those prices anymore because we don't usually face existential threats anymore. Now, President Trump is talking, uh, there's talk of him more seriously about the U.S. leaving the JCPOA. Um, What does that mean? Um, Also, do you think this will happen? And if it happens, um, does this increase the chance of a a war that that you just described? Well, if the U.S. really backs out of the JCPOA, and I hope it won't, and I tend to think that it won't in the end, that, in, for all practical purposes, is probably the beginning of the end of the JCPOA. And I think for a while, the Iranians will be smart enough to say, hey, the U.S. is the rogue state. The U.S. is violating this agreement. We're still in compliance, and we still want to continue enjoying the economic benefits that it will from the rest of the world, just not the United States. But the fundamental question is, what does this mean for the future of the attempts to prevent Iran from going nuclear? So, as I said, for a while, for a year or two or three, Iran will probably continue to adhere it. But after that, the bets are off. I think the objective of trying to fix the flaws of the agreement, and it was a flawed agreement. It had some bad flaws. The expiration, the so-called sunset clause, is the biggest one. We have to address that. The agreement correctly, from my point of view, did not address the missile and so-called malign activities issues because the logic was that the nuclear issue is the only existential one. Let's put that to bed, and then we can deal with the other issues. So we put it to bed temporarily. Let's deal with them. 
I think that the idea of trying to get at least the European allies and stage two maybe then in essence leaving the Russians and the Chinese without too much of a choice in terms of a follow-on agreement is is good. I thought that should have been done probably, let's say, in, in year eight of the agreement. I think the fact that the president is doing it now is premature. And certainly I disagree with the way he's done it. Trying to publicly coerce your allies into things isn't usually an advisable way uh, for conducting diplomacy. Nobody likes to be coerced into anything. Uh, the fact is he may not have left them a choice, and the French and the British, at least so far, do seem to be on board for at least some of the changes. The Germans, so far, less so. Uh, I think what's going to happen is he will get something from them, uh, not what he wants. It'll be enough for the U.S. to remain in the deal. It will be something of an improvement. I tend to think that if we had gone about this in the way that I said, in a more... uh, diplomatic and a more methodical approach, building support over time, not coming down on people with a uh, you know, 10-ton uh, hammer would have been more effective. So the way that you know we're looking at Iran, the way we're looking at the proxies in Hezbollah, the Syrian government, it's a really serious problem. But you uh, state in your book, and I think you've uh, intimated here, that Israel doesn't face an existential threat to its existence the way that it did in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and into the 1970s with the traditional wars with the Arab states. What distinguishes the threat posed by Iran from the challenges Israel faced with the Arab states in its early decades? Because, you know, the way you've presented it, Iran uh, is is a really serious issue. And I, I think that you know, a lot of our, our listeners would agree that, that it is a really serious issue. Um, but what makes it different from the, the the Arab state threat and what makes it non-existential? Well, first of all, it could become existential. And if they go nuclear, then you can argue what the word existential means. It becomes a potentially existential threat. Until now, Iran wasn't really on our border. Yes, Hezbollah was. But Hezbollah doesn't have the capability to defeat Israel. It can't invade Israel in any significant way. Yes, it could try and launch a cross-border raid and grab a neighborhood, maybe even some small border town. And that, by the way, is one of their plans. But that's the worst that they can do, and hopefully we can prevent them from doing even that. Uh, If Iran sets up base in Syria, then they start becoming a bordering country for all practical purposes. And that becomes more of a direct threat. Now, it doesn't look like they're really trying to build the capability for a conventional invasion like the Arab countries were trying to build in the early decades. And that the focus is still, what I was talking about before, a threat to Israel's home front for the most part. It's what's called indirect fire. It's mostly through rockets, missiles. It's a very heavy price to the home front. It's not a direct threat of invasion and of conquest. So from that point of view, it's not existential. Uh, It doesn't threaten Israel's territory. It's still a very severe threat. In some ways, it's even worse because the Arab countries never had the capability to hit Israel's own home front in a significant way. And if it's a threat over decades, they believe that they can erode Israeli society's resilience. 
and lead to ultimately to a collapse from within. I think they're wrong about that, but that's what they're going to try and do. You spoke earlier uh, about the West Bank and that the Israeli cabinet has never met to discuss the future of the West Bank. Is that correct? They've talked about specific issues with the peace process. They've never held a fundamental discussion of what it means for Israel overall. So if they were to really focus in on that issue and work to find a solution, which I think you would agree the best would be some form of separation from uh, the Palestinians, would that help them deal with these other issues, such as Iran, Hezbollah, and Lebanon, and, and Syria? In the final analysis, I'll oversimplify this a little bit, but almost all of Israel's national security challenges are greatly affected by the Palestinian issue, dramatically affected, and would be greatly ameliorated by a resolution. One of the biggest threats we face today or problems is delegitimization in the world. That is, I mean, Israel's horrendous international image today which is making inroads into the United States as well. That would be changed dramatically, certainly if we reach peace with the Palestinians, even if we just receive, reached significant, significant uh, progress towards an agreement with the Palestinians. Our ability to handle Hezbollah and Iran would be greatly enhanced by a resolution or, again, significant process of the Palestinian issue. We would ensure the long-term vitality of the relationship with the United States, one of, I believe, Israel's foremost national security And the objectives. bipartisan nature the of it. The bipartisan nature of it, absolutely. Uh, the, Pal- the Palestinian issue is key to just about everything of importance, and overwhelmingly, of course, our future as a Jewish and democratic state. Well, I definitely agree with you on that, and I think that's a good, good note to end on. Um, Chuck, thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, and uh, we look forward to many conversations in the future. So do I. That was Chuck Freilich, former Deputy National Security Advisor for the State of Israel, a current senior fellow in the International Security Program at the Harvard Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. And he has a new book out, Israeli National Security, A New Strategy for an Era of Change, published by Oxford University Press. Um, If you enjoyed this podcast, you can stay tuned for future episodes, and Chuck will be joining Israel Policy Forum at our upcoming program in Chicago, Israel Security at 70. That's on April 29th, and you can register at ipf.li forward slash ISR 70.